Hi, this is Paul. Welcome to the podcast, Things I Didn't Learn in School, where my guests describe the big life lessons they've learned outside the classroom. Welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. I am really honored today to have a guest, uh, Roger Johnson, who is a minister and a father and also runs an organization called Life Support, which plays a vital role in getting people from the inner city and all different forms of challenge on their feet and the assistance they need, I think has a fascinating story. So Roger, welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's begin. Probably a lot of people don't know who you are. So sure. just tell your life story. Where did you grow up? Who were mom and dad? How'd you get into what you're doing now? Let's just start there. I'm Roger. Well, I was born and grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut. My mom was 18 when she got pregnant with me. My dad was incarcerated for most of my young adult life, either in prison, out of prison, on his way back to prison. So it was pretty much me. So we were all Lasky kids probably for different reasons and similar reasons, but all we knew is we all walked home from school and then we all had this inadvertent freedom to hang out and do whatever we were going to do. You had young people without guidance defining for each other what was good, what was bad, what should be done, what shouldn't be done. And because I was relatively short, I found myself fighting bullies quite often from kindergarten to fifth grade. I never really ran from bullies until the sixth grade. It was in the sixth grade that sixth graders started bringing guns to school. And at that point, winning a fight against a bully could be a very dangerous thing. Okay, so this is a big thing. Yep. Police started bringing guns to school. Like, what is going on? I mean, the parents, and then there's the trick about getting the guns. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to this. Sure, sure. Now, logistically, how, how the guns got in people's hands, I probably still couldn't tell you. I'm glad you asked that, because I remember the gun became the cool thing. There was this big movement in the early 90s where there was this push to get realistic cap guns out of, out of stores where they would either put the red top on it or just... I remember everyone who didn't have an actual gun had this push to get to a store and get a, a, a toy that looked like a gun because a gun became the new thing. Everyone wanted a gun. I remember buying one and my mother... I, it was just a toy, but it was on the kitchen table. And my mother came home one day and saw it and she threw it right in the trash. And, you know, I bought it with my own money, but she didn't... She knew instinctively, okay, this can't happen. You, you're not going to be able to have one of those. And who knows, that may have saved my life. I've watched quite a few people to die during those years. I've had some friends get paralyzed by being shot in those years. I remember having guns pointed at me for silly reasons. I remember being at the basketball court and someone pointed a gun at me and said, give me your bike. And I went to get off the bike and he laughed and said, I'm oh, just kidding. And for him, it was a joke because he didn't want my bike. But you see, all these years later, I'll never forget what it felt like to have that gun pointed at me. So you're basically and so scared, that, it was a very, scared for, from a very young age and it's normalized? It became normalized. And the thing is, in that environment, being scared was never okay. And so you always had to pretend to not be afraid. In retrospect, you have a bunch of folks who are walking around either not or either pretending to not be afraid or joining the scariest people. And so the, the would-be victim of the bully becomes the bully just to avoid being the victim. In the early 90s, Bridgeport had the, what 
what were, was called the gang wars and young people were killing each other. I mean, over what color, if you, if you had the beads on and your bead, the colors of your beads representing the organization, they were, people were dying and it was really scary. The best way for a young person to not be a victim is to hang out with the bad guy, with the scary guy. And so many of us joined gangs, many of us who didn't join gangs hung out with the gang members because that felt like the safest place to be. Those felt like the safest people to be around. Looking back in the, as an adult, that's probably the exact opposite of what one, one should have done. But that's sort of what we did to feel safe. I remember there being an a older guy and he came to give a group of us guidance. I felt that there was something wrong with his guidance because I remember his guidance for us young guys was to tell us how to kill someone and get away with it. And I remember looking around and, and the, my friends who were with me, I, I noticed sort of out of, out, of the, out of my peripheral that they were shaking their heads learning. And I remember shaking my head too, but I was pretending because internally I felt like there's something wrong with this guidance. This guidance doesn't, seem normal this, this doesn't seem like the type of guy or this doesn't seem like the type of thing i want to learn but fitting in was the thing fitting in was the safe thing i imagine that dynamic is, is present in most high schools but the consequences of not fitting in probably wasn't wouldn't be as dire right and by the time i got to high school people were being pistol whipped in the hallways the principal wore a bulletproof vest for 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 quite some time for several months i remember it and it was a really scary time. I definitely know now that most of us were pretending to not be afraid. I remember my best friend at the time, he came to school one day and he told me that he had his first shootout the day before. And you wouldn't believe it that what, how it happened. He was on his porch and his mother's boyfriend threw a gun on his hand and said, start shooting. And some of the other guys came by in a car and shot. And he said to himself, as he told me that while he was pulling that trigger, while he was shooting the gun, he was praying to himself that, that the, a bullet didn't hit anyone. Mm. But now I think we were 16 at the time. If you're a 16 year old kid. You ask yourself, what, what else was I going to do? And this father figure puts a gun on my hand and says, start shooting. And right. And at that moment, someone starts shooting at you. And this was the environment we grew up in. Four children who are in yes. this situation today. And you're looking at this with the benefit of all this wisdom now. What is your advice to a child that is in that environment? That's one question. And then the second question is, looking at it with the wisdom of today, what should have happened then? What was the forces that should have been put into place from your perspective to make a child feel safe? I'm really glad you asked that question. Being a dad now myself, I, I don't live where I grew up. But what I would tell someone is this. If you don't do positive things on purpose, you are going to do negative things by accident. If you don't, if you don't go to the right places. And so even before going to a young person, because I, 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 I mean no slight or disrespect when I say I doubt a 16-year-old will be listening to this podcast. But <laughs> if I were a parent, I would say to a parent, figure out any activity your child has an aptitude in. I don't care if it's chess. I don't care if it's t-ball. And get them there. Because those tended to be the kids who they, they were perceived as cool because they were in a group. They, you know, they had a group of associates. And they ended up going to college because it seemed like if – the friend, if the friend in that case, for instance, had he been at sports practice, he wouldn't have been on the porch to begin with. Mm -hmm. What I will say is 
there doesn't tend to be a shortage of programs in the inner city. But now, it's funny, now growing up as an adult, I look back and, and hear about all the programs that, are, that existed then and exist now. I never knew about those as a kid. I, I would have needed an older person to tell me about it, sign me up for it, and maybe even initially force me to go. But those programs, those, those, those activities that, that aren't negative could probably save a lot of lives. They could probably keep people out of prison just by virtue of the fact that a lot of, a, a great deal of crime and victimization is circumstantial. It sounds kind of cliche to say wrong place, wrong time, yep. but our whole neighborhoods were the wrong place. And it was hard to be, it's hard not to be there at the wrong time. But that's where you are all the time. Mm. And dad, the whole time, were you having any contact with him when he was serving his time? It's funny, I did. My father began his career of going to prison at the age of 18. And I also, the first time I went to prison was for 18. Ironically, he went to prison for armed robbery and so did I. But it was towards the end. When I was on my way home, he was at, at a program. We ended up being at the same program at the same time. We are assigned to programs in the same city at the same time. And we did bump into each other. I remember him noting that I had changed. And in changing, he never would have perceived me as, as sort of a criminal anyhow, but he perceived a level of adulthood that was present that had obviously wouldn't have been present prior to incarceration. And some of that had been the gaining of direction and the gaining of focus. And so there's basically no parental figure around? None whatsoever. Mm-hmm. That's, that's absolutely correct. All those years, my father was either incarcerated, on his way home, on his way back to prison. He was in non prison my entire life. Fast forward maybe 20-something years in the future, one of our initial programs were for guys in the halfway house. And one of the initial questions we asked everyone was question. We said, what would you do if you could fail at nothing? If money were no object, you know, failure was not an option. Not what would you buy, but how would you spend the rest of your life? Now, these are guys, the majority of these guys had been incarcerated for revenue-oriented crime, right? They had been selling drugs and things like that. Yep. We didn't have any authority to put them in jail or anything, so they had no reason to lie to us. But the answer was consistently, I would start a youth program. I would create a community program. It was always some positive community activity. And it was clear to me that at some point, these guys never were given the perception that they had options. So to rewind back to to what sort of changed the direction of my life was early on in prison. And prison was a very scary place, especially if you're 120 pounds and you're 18 years old. A lot of older folks took me under the wing because they knew my dad. They had been incarcerated with my dad. They knew my uncles. They had been incarcerated with my uncles. And so I was, I was sort of, I don't want to say protected, but I was definitely guided by a lot of older people who were incarcerated. And having conversations with those folks, though they had these careers of crime, if you would, they had these backgrounds that encapsulated addiction and whatever else, they still had aspirations. Somehow, something about prison, it makes you forget, and for, for many, what you've been through. It, it it makes you forget what your limitations had been, if only in the sense of what my potential is. I you I've never heard of what we call a reentry plan say, you know, I'm just gonna come back to jail. I'm just gonna I'm gonna get out of prison and land in a homeless shelter. You never hear people talk like that. You hear people talk about what they're going to do when they come home. And while many of them may or may not be successful, me being a kid listening I was hearing about things that never existed. I mean, I learned about the SBA in prison, the Small Business Administration. I, yep. I learned about the different types of businesses that could be started as an inmate in prison, just talking to people. One of my bunkmates, he, he was a commodity day trader, and he was doing—he was in prison because he had a, he, he suffered drug addiction. But 
I remember he was day trading from prison. He would he would go to the phone in the morning. He would call his girlfriend. She would click over and call his broker. And this guy was was just doing this stuff from here. And it it blew my mind to learn all the things that were available to people. At some point, that sense of potential shifted what I would do. It shifted how I spent my time in prison. Because now if you're, if you're in prison, you're going to look for things to do. But most of my extra activities in prison would have been college. They would have been business schools because everything like that, that posed itself as an opportunity, I would sign up for it because I had this newfound realization of what was possible. I'm just struck by about how scary the streets seem. And prison also seems terrifying, but prison seems oh my God, both yeah. productive. At the, why would there be that difference? Prison, all of a sudden, you see those possibilities that you didn't see on the street. In the case of me being exposed to it, it's because of the older guys. We would talk more often and just hearing them talk about their dreams. There was sort of this, I, I like to say, dream to dream resuscitation almost, whereas uh, in hearing their dreams, it sort of spoke to my inner possibilities. Whereas if you're home, there was no adult. It sounds like what you're saying is outside you were quote unquote free, but because there was no meaningful mentorship, kind of directionless, and in prison, even though scary and your freedom is taken away, there was actually mentoring. Is that accurate or am I mis? Am I got it wrong? That- that is absolutely what I'm saying. That's, if I would just sort of expand a bit, mentor is a strong word. I'll, I'll share this story. I remember one of the guys who I'm picturing in my mind during that time that, that would talk about their life and share information. I remember one day he jokingly said to me, if you ever come back here again, I'm going to teach you how to rob a bank. And he was saying it jokingly, but he meant it. And so I hesitate to use the word mentor because of the positive <laughs> connotation of the word mentor as much as the exposure to the possibilities that the world could offer. Yeah. And also uh, so, so and you think, too, that that's, that that's your exposure. In other words, there's, it's, right. you're an incredibly intelligent, entrepreneurial, moral guy. And if you could get some of that exposure earlier, boy, <laughs> how much easier your life could have been. It would definitely been different. I, I tend to not look back and say, I wish it would have, because I wonder if I would have met my wife in the same way and had the same kids. And I'm, I'm really, Fair one of the things I'm proudest about, maybe because I love being a dad and I'm really proud of, of, of the job I've been able to do. And I, I say that with a level of almost arrogance or maybe pride in my job as a dad because I look back and think about father absence in my life. Talked about the, the pen pal at prison. Ah, that's right. Uh, I call her mom now. She's the second mom. And <laughs> it's funny. She, <laughs> In reality, she's a distant cousin. And uh, she, I guess, she had come to Connecticut and she heard about my religious conversion. I accepted Christ as Lord and she was already Christian. And that wasn't really common in our, in our family, you know. And so she asked my mom, I think, if she could write me. And in writing me, she told me that she heard I was super intelligent. And the thing that stood out to me, I was like, what is she talking about? And so apparently members of, uh, of I'll say my family who was kind of closer to me in proximity had shared with her, oh, Roger's really smart. But 
I had never heard any of those folks say that, you know? And so when she said she heard I was smart, I'm wondering, who told you that? I mean, sometimes I look back at that just to, to kind of help me as a dad. I realize how important it is, not just my own kids, how important it is for a, a young person to realize their strengths, their potential, and how detrimental it can be if no one is doing that, if no one is pointing out to you, this is where you're good, this is where you're strong, this is where you have the potential. Because other than that, you see drug dealers, you see mm-hmm. criminals that are successful, and that tends to be, whether anyone says it out loud or not, that tends to set your mental cap. The most successful thing I, I, I see is the most successful thing I can be. And so many of my friends emulated that. Whereas I think about my schoolmates who went to college and went on and done some phenomenal things career-wise, the vast majority of them had been involved in some program, some athletic program, what have you, that exposed them to adults that, that were doing great things themselves and, and were aware of resources that they shared. And it seems like that sense of that inadvertently instilled sense of potential is what really made the difference between the person who graduated and went to college, or as we used to say, the person who graduated to prison. I, we say that because the jail was right across the street from the high school. And so when you went to jail, we would always say, oh, he graduated. That would be the vernacular for he got arrested because the jail was across the street. I remember when my classmate, because I, I, I went to jail, I think, two months before what would have been my high school graduation. And I remember trying to see the graduation from the prison window because I was right across the street. Mm-hmm. And uh, what it seems like made the difference between graduating to across the street and graduating to a university had always been someone inadvertently instilling that potential. Someone had to to, to show you that what you were capable of. And it, it's funny, maybe morals, maybe not, but it seemed like that sense of potential had morality as kind of an, an offshoot, kind of as a, yeah. A side effect. I wonder if you would share anything about your religious conversion and then if you could talk some about those letters with the person you now call Bob. I'm glad you asked that. So when I first got to jail, I knew about the stigma that people would go to jail and forget how to read. Now, what I know now is it's more so that the average person who goes to jail has a third grade reading level. And so whereas as a kid, I thought people went to jail and forgot how to read. The reality is most of them pretty much can't, statistically speaking. But that being said, I, I remember saying to myself, I don't want to forget how to read. And so I asked someone if I can borrow a book. And that book, this case, had been the, the, the Quran. It was a Muslim person. He had a bunch of books. And I didn't know that you weren't able to touch it. I, I didn't know the rules of the religion where you have to wash your hands before touching the book and it, what have you. And I remember reading that book for a while just for the sake of having something to read. Each to his own, some of what was said concerning Christ and, and his identity didn't match kind of what I grew up hearing. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I gave the gentleman the book back for, for, if only because it just, it didn't match what I had heard. Right. Mm-hmm. And there was a gentleman, I don't know where, I don't know where he came from, but he, he got to this part of the jail and it seemed like everyone was, everyone was fond of him and everyone seemed to know him. And he was sitting there with two books. Every day I would see him from my bunk because I had a high bunk. He had a low bunk. And I would see him and he would have two books open and a notebook. And I just assumed he was reading the Bible and the Quran for comparison's sake. And I just walked over and I asked, you know, you're studying the Bible and the Quran. Which one is right? Now, again, looking back, I think about that as a question. It's curiosity. It's a great question. I mean, if you're trying to think yeah. Which one is right, right? Yeah, it, fair enough. And, but now he told me, well, I'm not studying both. I'm reading the Bible, but I'm not going to tell you which is right. I, but basically what he was saying was sort of 
try it out and see how it goes. I remember being moved by what he said to the extent that I came back to talk to him every day. He was my first real mentor. He would kind of read me the Bible every day. And I hadn't made a religious conversion yet, but at that same time while I was itching towards Christ, the gangs were itching towards my initiation. If you're a young person and if the prison gangs come to you, an invite isn't optional, right? The only way they allow you to say no, the only acceptable no is because you've chosen a religion. And that, that's like an unspoken prison code. That the, the gangs will accept you not joining the gangs if it's because of you haven't joined it, you haven't taken part of religion. And so those two things were sort of happening simultaneously. The gangs were, were sort of evaluating what was going to happen. And it was right after I accepted to make Christ the Lord. It might have been a week later or a day later. I don't remember how, many, how long. The two gang leaders came to me and they said, all right, you have a choice. You're going to join this gang or that one. And I remember saying, I'm going to choose Christ. And one of them said, I, the older guy said, I, I'll respect that. And he walked away. The younger guy said he respected it, but he made it very clear that he was still tempted to sort of issue the penalty for saying no to a gang, which is when that night when you go to sleep, several people are going to hurt you really badly. Oh, yeah, I, I, I think terrifying is when you see it for the first time without knowing it's going to happen. I, that, as God is my witness, that I think I'm traumatized from, <laughs> to this day from seeing it. I remember being 18, I was laying on a bunk, and the guy on the bunk next to me got this treatment. And, oh God, I remember not being able to sleep. Every time I closed my eyes, I thought I was going to be next. It was... Yeah. Understanding how things work, you, you, you realize that some, I don't want to say irrational, most of it wasn't realistic where I wasn't going to be the next victim. I wasn't going to be a victim at all because I hadn't done what this person had done, but you're an 18 year old kid and you just seen this guy get hurt really badly for, for, for seemingly no reason. And you don't see why you can't be next. Four years in prison that night was the, was the scariest for me. I, I, I mm. from that time, it's, I, I've seen things in prison that were quite violent um more violent than that night but that was the scariest yep sure you said i've chosen christ are the gag members testing you after that in terms of whether this is whether you're just saying this for cover or whether it's a genuine yep absolutely at that point you're evaluate you're watched or where are you going to be consistent and i didn't know any of this at the time i didn't know that the gangs would issue that invite would now watch to see if you were consistently Christian. If you were, if they saw you sneaking cigarettes or marijuana or something, then you're, okay, nice. the invitation is back, and this time there's no option. In prison, everyone has a circle, right? And the people who have accepted Christ congregate together. The same thing for people who, who have accepted Islam. The gangs congregate together. They eat together. They sleep next to each other. They spend their life together. They don't just give you safety. They give you this sense of belonging. I can't give words to it. Prison is another planet in that way. The terminology is different. A friendship formed in prison is different. You sort of live with this person for, for X amount of time. You know, you've slept in front of this person with, without fear of being hurt. And, and just to contradict myself, as tight as, as, as a bond that, that potentially gets formed, one of the common expressions was, I came by myself, I'll leave by myself. You have no control over prison logistics. As fond as you may have become of a person, the buys goodbyes are all always abrupt for security reasons of course you don't get warning that you're going to be leaving or move even to this day it shapes how you relate to people now you where you've gotten used to becoming close to a person but then that relationship ends with nothing approaching what you might call closure now there's this period of your life 
that, that inadvertently programs you to think a certain way, process things a certain way. You're in an environment that is eminently unsafe. You crave safety. And that this Christianity, that group would provide it. And so there's mm-hmm. not only the content of the religion and then the spiritual thing, which is always difficult to put into words, but that there's a very physical thing of safety. Mm-hmm. It seems like that would all be together, that experience, no? For one, definitely. Kind of completely paint the picture, though. There's a certain amount of safety that came from it that I wasn't aware of at the time. I didn't know that if religion had been my choice, if I had just decided not to join the gangs with that, there, there would have been a potential for violence there. But there was definitely this sense of acceptance and belonging. So we're basically all new converts, if you would. And so we have this this bright expectation of the world. Think of the teachings of, of Christianity. Your sins are washed away. You're a new person. And now think about that dynamic if you're in prison. I, I have this criminal record, but I'm a new person. Like, you know, I, it's my old things have washed away. And so when you and I sit down together, I'm focusing on who you are now and who you're looking to be. Because that's what you see in yourself, and you had this community that, more so than safety, it gave you a sense of acceptance. Adults who haven't been incarcerated crave that, but now you're a kid who grew up in a violent environment. You transition to probably a more, in its own way, a more violent environment. And in the midst of this chaos, you find this acceptance that you've never found before. That emotional home for me became a home. Whereas I remember upon my release, the free world didn't feel like home. In the back of my mind, I'm going to end up back in prison only because this world here, what we used to, we call this the brick in prison. The brick didn't feel real. It didn't feel like reality. Don't get me wrong. Prison sucks. There's so many just terrible things about prison I can go into or not go into. I don't want to give this illusion that it's a great place, but in the midst of this very terrible place, you have these connections that are formed. So get to the pet pal. So your distant relative oh, yep. <laughs> knows that you're smart. She begins yep. writing you in prison, which is also just a remarkable yep. thing on her part. And so what are you thinking when these first letters show up? It's funny. I remember not knowing what to say. Someone who just wrote you because she heard of your convert, your conversion to Christ. And you, the two of you now having this thing in common, you're still basically writing a stranger. And so this relationship developed over time with just strictly writing where her writing had been guidance on growing as a Christian, guidance on understanding the way of life that I, that I was learning to live in that religious sense. Mm-hmm. When I came home, she invited me to her, she lives in New York. She invited me to her house for a weekend. And it was then that I put a name on a relationship where we had already fairly solidly developed a, a mother-son relationship without ever using the words mother-son. And it was that weekend that we, we sort of said it out loud, and she's been mom ever since. Amazing. So from there, you're shy of graduation from high school. You have four years of prison. So now you're getting out at, you know, I guess, your early 20s, and the world mm-hmm. has got to be stacked against you. You don't have a high school. I don't know. Did you have a high school degree? You've got a conviction and it's like, and now you, and mm-hmm. you don't have a support system to speak of really strong. And now you got to start from scratch, which has got to be brutal. Let me tell you about it. I got my GD in prison. Um, I took my SATs in prison. I think I knocked out my freshman year of college in prison. I, I completed business school in prison. So I, I had a lot of education. Deciding to sign up for the things I had decided to sign up for was, was completely based on 
me having this this newfound sense of potential. Now you start preparing yourself for this this future because you develop the sense of future and this great life you're going to have. And I wish you could see how many fingers are putting up in quotations because as you as you might imagine, you come home to this rude awakening that we live in a society that is very good at locking up people who have broken the law, but yep. not as good as accepting the fact that a debt to society has been paid. Yes. I became really good at software while I was in prison. I mean, good to the point where staff of the prison would come get me and bring them to their offices to solve the problems where they got stuck. I came home and I tried to get a job using the, these really strong skills, but almost always being turned away. So you would get to the point, you get to the first interview, the second interview, and I've actually received offer letters in writing prior to them finding out about my records and pulling those offers right back. Those things, they kind of they shape who you are. With every rejection, I learned something new. It contributed to my toolkit of what I can share to somebody else. Now, also, you, you're coming home, by and large, most folks, I, forget, I couldn't tell you the percentage, but most of us, we came home with some sort of stipulation. Either we came home early on parole, so we were responsible, you know, we had to report to a parole officer. I say often, having a dream for later that was bigger than what I was going through got me what I was going through. I mean, I use that expression so often that, you know, I sell therapy with that expression. So I came home, I had these aspirations, and I had this this, this skill set in terms of classroom and, and, you know, classroom learning, it seemed like the only jobs I can really hold down would be the, or have, get would be the jobs that didn't ask the criminal record question. And those jobs were almost always temp jobs. The tricky part about that is this, they were long-term temp jobs. So they would last about, and this is almost consistent. They would last long enough for you to start making financial commitments uh, just for them to break and now you can't keep up with commit, whatever bill it is. And so many people don't think about the effect that would have on one's credit. So later on, when you want to buy a home or you want to start a business, that's there. Uh, and not to make excuses for myself or anyone else, those are factors that most people don't consider. I remember coming home and my, I was still hot for college, if you would. I think my most recent course had ended a few months before I came home. And so I, I applied to UNH almost immediately. And that might've been one of the first thing I, I did. I was accepted. And so I was working third shift full-time. I was going to UNH full-time. I had taken a part-time job in, at an in accounting firm. The, the, the owner of that firm was, was a deacon at the church, a church that I, I attended then and I still attend now. And so it was a kind of a busy thing. And you still had to, your commitments with parole and or probation. In my case, because robbery is considered a violent crime, the parole officer had me show up. I guess the idea was they didn't want you to have any free time because, you know, who knows what you're going to do. And so you had to show up to this program and you would decide to kind of sit in the daytime detention for maybe four to six hours. And the trouble was, well, I would go to, I would show up having just got off my third shift job. And then you would leave there to get to school. And I was wiped out. I remember sleeping in world civilizations, because the, the, the content wasn't really exciting and the, the room was dark, I remember sleeping through a bunch of my classes because I was wiped out. You weren't allowed to sleep at daytime detention. And so I remember being wiped out all the time. And I often say it was hard. And the, the, the when I say PO, it could have been a probation officer or pro officer. The officer didn't really care that it was rough. That's when I always talk about the fact that I had a dream that was bigger, and that sort of encouraged me. Whereas this sucks. 
but I know what I'm shooting for. And very often folks who are coming home from prison, let the, this sucks drown out the dream that they sort of developed in prison. And often I, I really think that, that, that really is a contributor to recidivism. I've given up on my sense of potential. The, the difficulty I face when I come home drowns out what had been my sense of potential. And so why not? Not why not go back to prison, but why not return to the same criminality that I had been involved in before? Because I, I've returned to the sense of the same sense of, uh, of no potential. Because many of those programs, honestly, the nature of them speak to your lack of potential. Just by way of, I mean, you see the difference between you and the people who are there, the, the program staff, the, the, what, how they get there, where their car versus your bus, what the, the level of authority, the rightful authority they, they have over you, on some level it speaks to who you are as a member of society. Because most members of society don't have that person over them saying what you can and can't do. Right. Uh, and, and like I said, in many cases, merited, but in most cases, it still has an effect on your psyche. I remember being off parole and probation and looking for permission to go to the bathroom in a grocery store or making my actions overt to make sure it was clear to everyone I wasn't stealing or I wasn't breaking a rule because that parole officer was still present in your mind. You were still an inmate on some level in your mind. Mm-hmm. Getting past that took quite a few years. How did that evolve then to what you're doing now? The church that I'm a member of, they were active in the prison when I was an inmate. Mm-hmm. And I came home and I joined that church. I was asked to, to become a volunteer in that church's prison ministry. And that, that changed my life because volunteering exposed me to people and resources that I would have never met outside of doing that. The prison, prison ministry coordinator at the time, she asked me to help her create a job fair for ex-offenders. There was a person we got to come out from the Department of Labor, and he did a workshop. This was right after one of those job offers that got pulled back. And so tongue-in-cheek, when the guy was leaving, and I sort of said, to, hey, why don't you help me get a job? I, I, I show people how to use Microsoft Excel, but I can't get a job using it because of my record. And he said, start a training center. We'll pay you $3,000 a person. And to this day, I haven't been paid $3,000 for any person there, but he made me aware of a resource. So ultimately, I did begin a training center, and I did get registered with the Department of Labor, and I, and I had some success. I'm saying Department of Labor. I'm oversimplifying, the, you know, but basically, we're saying Department of Labor. It started me in the business of helping people. The first and best things that could happen in any business endeavor is failure because failure is that informative. I remember explaining to my dad, he was like, wow, you, you know all the pitfalls of that business. And I, I didn't say it, but I said to myself, because I fell in every single one of them. By the time that period was over, I was really able to master my business model from a series of failures. It began this process of I'm offering this thing of value to this ex-offender because initially it was all about ex-offenders and I'm having a third party pay for it. And that was the foundation of my whole career, even to this day in the case of therapy and, and medical insurance is paying for it. So turn to fatherhood. I know that you're a very involved father. One description I've heard of what's heroic in a life is that if there is a series of generations of dysfunction and then the parent tries to make a line and says, that was the previous generations. I am not passing that down 
to the next generation. Right. I consider that heroic because I know people that have grown up in very, very functional families. And I think that's fantastic. And their spouse is from a functional family and the parents, the whole thing is just rock solid. And that's wonderful. But a lot of people aren't. And the trick is, is that if you're not, you carry that with you to a certain degree. And then the huge challenge, yep. I feel like, is how to raise your children without passing that on to them. Describe your journey. Sure. In the same way I became exposed to what became my business by being at the church, I met what would one day, and it is my wife at that same church. We are in a blended family. I don't say I have stepchildren. I, I have four children. You know, two of them aren't biological. But I, that period of courting and then being married to my wife and becoming a father of a then 10-year-old and 6-year-old, I think what happened, their fathers were absent to some extent. And hearing my wife sometimes vent, sort of correct what was happening with father absence in the case of my two, my two older daughters, it became informative of what not to do in many ways. I'm crazy about all four of my kids. I mean, light of my life. But then my wife became president. I had my my first biological daughter. There was this connection between me and this thing. I, I, in saying it like that, I remember, I remember holding her, and she was staring in my face, almost like she was learning my face, and I was learning hers. And from there, I remember. She was always with me. I, you know, the the older girls had we had that same dynamic prior to, but I think your kids get older and outgrow you, as it were. You know, you're not the cool guy that they want to hang out with anymore. Just being present. One of the the primary focuses at you know at my church is fatherhood, is, is being a good husband. And you're exposed to these things that you have never that you had never seen and heard, but you see it and hear it from this father figure who is a pastor. And so a lot of that was me emulating him and a lot of that was me just kind of learning as I, I went along, and the biggest thing was being present. So you look back on this life, Roger, and it's pretty unbelievable. Mm-hmm. In other words, you go from mm-hmm. gun battles to con to finding religion, finding a life partner, raising four kids, becoming a successful four small business person. It's a huge range. So if you were trying to you know, you were giving a college graduation speech and you're trying to distill hmm. certain lessons to people that they should carry in mind from this. I've heard a few of them from you, but I wonder if, if you were to sort of say like the big life lessons for me are the following. What are they? There's two things that, that stand out and the, the first one may even sound redundant because of how often I've used this word in this conversation. But number one is being aware of your potential. If you realize that you don't have limitations, regardless to, to your socioeconomic background, regardless to, to, to what, what, what you've been through, it, it, as real as those things were, and as prevalently as they may say to you that you have a lack of, of capability, being aware of what you're capable of, of the, uh, the fact that the, the sky is, is legitimately the limit. But the second part of that is the qualifier, taking responsibility for your own potential. I wrote this workbook some years ago for, for young guys in prison. It's called Homework. And one of the bigger things I talk about was when you're in prison, um, you're guaranteed what's called three hots in a cot. Basically, you get a bed and you're guaranteed these three meals a day. 
And if a correctional officer were to deny you this meal, you can write a grievance and get him in trouble with this job because you're entitled to these three meals. The problem is we come home and we expect society to still owe us that tray. Support what they are and they're needed when they are needed. But the trouble is, I'll, I said in the, in the workbook, the problem with your tray, you never get to decide what's on your tray. What I often would have someone focus on is if someone else is guaranteeing you, what, whoever that is, whatever that means, if someone else is responsible for the fulfillment of your potential, then you'll never get to pick what it is. And so becoming responsible for your potential is not just saying, it's just a cliche to say, I can do whatever I set my mind to or the sky's the limit. But the key there is I'm going to do it and I'm going to take responsibility for it. And I even go so far as to say, and if I don't give my give it to myself, I'll write a grievance on myself. And those are the mm-hmm. two biggest comebacks. Realize what you're capable of and take responsibility for it. Outside of your life story, one more wave in a long ah. history going back hundreds of years in mm-hmm. racial tension and reckoning in this country. And yep. of course, everybody has their own perspective on this. And it's unbelievably complex issues and difficult to summarize. But I just wonder, mm-hmm. as you were watching all this going on, you know, what was what was going through your mind as you were watching all this unfold? Yeah, I mean, you're right. When you say it's a complex issue, it's, lately it's become even more complex for me. And I'll tell you why. I am a black man from the inner city. And that means what it means with everything that comes with it. Whereas growing up, before there was a Black Lives Matter, before uh, technology was able to capture police brutality, police were the bad guys to me always. Whereas if it's because I saw them dragging my uncles out the house or if I saw the people I looked up to avoiding police, police had always been the bad guy. That had been, that shaped my perception. Whereas the George Floyd stuff and all those things, that I often say to myself, that was a, a wake-up call for people outside of my community. We always knew police would hurt you. I, you know, police. I remember a cop telling me, "Hey, listen, if you run from me, you better make sure you get away because if you if you if I have to chase you, I'm going to hurt you when I catch you." That was the reality of our world. But recently, in the last, I think, two years, here this was here's a shocker for me. I'm involved in a program that, not my own program, but I volunteer with a program that works with inner city gun violence. It's primarily staffed by police. And through that program, I've been in meetings with the leadership of, of the New Haven Police Department. The thing that, here's what shocked me. I'm in this weekly meeting and they start talking about these programs, these youth programs. I was realizing in many ways, the local police department was doing more for the community than the people who are criticizing them. And that's not to give a pass for bad cops. I'm not doing that at all, right. but just, there was a, an assistant chief that when this moved me to my core, he started crying. I remember him saying how uh, there was a picture of a person on the wall, and he was telling the story about this person, how multiple occasions this person had run from him with a gun in his hand, and he was chasing this kid, praying that he did not have to end his life. And that painted a, a shade to the reality that I never thought about, that we're human, right? I'm an ex-felon, and when I, when, when I was an active felon, I was a human. The police are humans, too, and I, I'm coming to the realization that cognitive bias, is, it, it, I won't even call it racism as much as I call it this cognitive bias, whereas I have this perception, or I have my perception of, of the world, and here you have a person with a badge and a gun, a racist or not racist, they have this perception of, of me. 
I've noted a while ago that if you were to go to the inner city, right, and you were to randomly pick two young men, and one of them is actively engaged in crime and one of them is actively engaged in college, you wouldn't know the difference. They dress the same. They speak the same. I wouldn't know the difference. And here you have this reality where we have to stop being murdered unjustly. And at the same time, we have to, we, we, as the older people now, we have to, to work to ending black on black crime at the same time. But I think you said it best when you said it's a complex issue. Whereas I remember on one side, there was this rally where my second oldest daughter was on a bullhorn speaking against police. And on the other side, you had this police leadership who I meet with every week. And I think to some extent, both sides have their valid points. Life is valuable. Black life is valuable. And we have to have this way where we're dealing with problems specific to the problem, whereas police brutality is a problem. Uh, black on black crime is a problem in terms of, uh, of black people like myself being victimized unjustly by police. I think a lot of work needs to go into the police training. I think there, there needs to be a lot more community policing. If, hypothetically speaking, if there were a basketball league and the police with the coaches, I know now I'm a lot less likely to, to accidentally shoot this kid because I thought he was going to reach for a gun because I coach and mentor this kid. Again, there, there needs to be more of a bridge between police and the community, not just so the community would be comfortable with the police, but for the sake of our lives, the police have to learn to become more comfortable with us, more engaged with us, because regardless to where you live, if you, if you get paid to be assigned to a neighborhood, to a very large extent, you're a part of that neighborhood. And you're part of that neighborhood can't just be, I'm here to arrest the criminal. I'm here to, to chase down the person who broke the law. You have to become a part of that community. You need to, to get to know the, the young people and the young people need to get to, to know you, that really would have an effect on the way a police officer sees the people in the community. And that change of perception, I really think it, it would really, it, it would do a lot in terms of police unjustly killing black people. I always ask sure. all my guests, do you have any questions? You don't have to, but I just always want to give the, the guests yes. the opportunity so it doesn't seem like it's a one-way street. I have two questions for you, actually. Um, okay. In your book, right, you talk about something that I don't remember if, if I said this on or off air, that the party, we had this shared experience that really shocked me. Mm-hmm. And forgive me if I'm being too candid in, in, in the way I phrase this question, but you talk about being, I think you were talking about being in a business meeting or at a firm and you felt uncomfortable, like you didn't belong, mm-hmm. right? Yep. It triggered this memory. I remember being in a room full of investors and like many rooms I find myself in, I was the youngest person, the only black male in the room, and I felt completely uncomfortable. So in this part of your book, where you share that experience, it shocked me because you're white. Mm-hmm. Question number one is a two-part question. Why were you uncomfortable in that way, and how did you overcome that? I think I was uncomfortable, Roger, because I felt like I didn't belong, basically. <laughs> so as I talked about in the book, my childhood was... Awfully boring compared to yours, but every you only know your own childhood. So my mother dying when I was young, and then me becoming really angry and violent about this and doing some really stupid stuff, and then also having a little bit of a learning disability in school, I felt like I was a little bit of a freak. Wow. And so home life didn't come easy to me. That was just bad luck. And the school didn't come particularly easy to me. And so I had these dreams. I relate to what you're saying. But I really felt like 
in my own way, even though I'm white, I felt like a real outsider. And so when I was in those, when I was in those meetings, I would have what my wife has told me is called imposter syndrome. You're sitting there and you're like, well, any minute now, they're going to figure out that I do not belong in this room. And you're like, Paul, why don't you just step outside and go home? We really know what's going on. So that's where that sense was from. And I think it's more common than I had imagined. I thought that it was such a big deal, but I've talked to so many people and I try to share this with my kids now. They're like, I've had a really hard day. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sympathetic. You've had a hard day. And you know what? Most of the other seven and a half billion people on the planet have too. You know, people are wrestling with all sorts of, they had a terrible sleep or they're sick or they're short of money. The, the, when I started to focus on myself a little bit less, which has taken me a long time and focus on others more, you really begin to see that everybody is really wrestling with different issues. You know, if I'm an imposter, we're all, we're all imposters. And it just took me a long, long time to get there. Wow. Thank you for that. I guess my second question come, come, comes in when you're talking about balance, yep. life and career. I know you did a lot of, tra- a great deal of traveling. And while you're traveling, you know, again, we have some shared experiences there. The, the wife is sort of home and there's this, again, I'm speaking of my, my life, not yours, resentment on the part of the, your wife because of your outdoing, you're out working. Were you able to achieve a balance there between work and home and life and business? And if so, how? Uh, just barely, I would say. I retired from working at that, that financial company that I was a part of that had a lot of travel last year. It was really tough to maintain the balance. And I've often said, and I think that I'm very fortunate that Marina and I were able to stay together because I think that there were a lot of stresses that can lead a family to fall apart. And I kind of think wow. that the times when parents have young kids at home, is actually one of the mm-hmm. most vulnerable times in life. It's vulnerable for the kids and it's vulnerable for the marriage. And it's typically at that time that the greatest career demands are being made on people. And it always oh my goodness. Yep. As, as somewhat off. Like really what you would want to do is put a lot of career demands on people before they have kids. And then frankly, there's this whole period of life because people live longer now in their 50s, and 60s, and 70s, what actually they could do a ton but that a lot of people don't want them doing a ton. But that middle period when people are having a kid. So I think that it's a, the balance is a little bit off. We got through it, I think, in part because Marina and I didn't have anybody else to turn to. But I think it's really, really stressful in a family, that type of, that type of dynamic. <laughs> 